Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning. Welcome to Inside Politics. Happy Friday to everybody. Real pleasure to welcome to the program from Global BC, uh, Keith Baldry and Richard Zussman and from the Vancouver Sun, Vaughn Palmer. Welcome to all. Uh, good Shane. to be on with you again. Yeah, so uh, okay. let's, ju- let's jump right into this thing, guys. I mean, this has been... Uh, a hell of a week on the money laundering front. We had luxury cars earlier in the week, and then uh, the report on real estate, which I think everybody was waiting to see, and holy moly, this report. Uh, <laughs> Keith, uh, I mean, people were mad about this thing before. They're going to be steaming mad now. What jumped out on the, on the real estate and housing front? Well, just how much uh, of this stuff was going on in terms of cash purchases uh, and how many... One thing about Peter German's reports, he doesn't point fingers, he doesn't name names, but he really provides a very good graphic, anecdote-rich description of what's going on and in ways that people can understand. So his ability to point out, you know, 33,000 people who called themselves students, homemakers, or unemployed were able to buy residential homes, mostly in Metro Vancouver, one assumes, at the high end for millions of dollars. Like, how does that happen without anybody blowing the whistle? Uh, so many people seem to either look the other way or just uh, the, the complete system failure here to catch people who were obviously engaged in some very shady and questionable real estate transactions. And he, you know, he, he singles out the legal profession and the realtor p- profession for some criticism of not doing due dil- diligence here and basically calling for uh, a complete uh, uh, revamping when it comes to transparency. But I just think it's the totality of the whole thing. You know, $7.4 billion money laundered last year alone, $5 billion in real estate. This all occurred after money laundering was brought to, to light as a public issue. So it's been going on in plain sight for up until recently. Yeah, the thing that jumped out at me, I mean, this is just last year, 2018, when the, the market was starting to come down a bit. But Vaughn, I mean, 2015, 2016, when it was roaring hot, uh, the mind reels of what was going on back then. Well, yeah, and look, the other thing this exercise did, Shane, was a favor for the entire country. I mean, these reviews were set up to look at what was going on in British Columbia. What they find is that there's almost $50 billion worth of this activity going on right across Canada last year, and that B.C. doesn't even have the worst of it. So, you know, it's clear from reading these reports that Ottawa needs to do a great deal here, too. The province Mm -hmm. cannot change the regulations, the law, the criminal code, and all that by itself. It needs help from the federal government. But, you know, in a federal election year, if the feds don't seize on this and say, we're going to do all this and we're going to do it quickly, um, politically, I think it's very stupid of them. Yeah. Richard, uh, in your mind, I mean, we we learned a lot about real estate and housing, which I think is going to be the real fire starter here, uh, but not uh, shouldn't be lost in all this. The Maureen Maloney's expert panel, uh, which contributed on that front, but others too, made 29 recommendations and helped sort of uh, paint a clearer picture overall as well. What, What out of that report caught your eye? Yeah, the recommendations are interesting because the big recommendation is something that the provincial government is already in the midst of doing which is putting in place this landowner transparency registry. It's before the House now. They are debating it. Uh, Finance Minister Carol James said the priority is making sure that it gets passed through the legislature, and then they can start setting it up to help better track these transactions. And then to the point that Vaughn was making, a lot of the recommendations around Ottawa and the federal government and what 
can they do to help ensure that the rules are followed and that there is actual enforcement there? When I asked Maureen Maloney about this uh, yesterday, what she said uh, was that tracking is essential. We need more data and we need more people to be able to look through the data so they can see the problems. Like Keith mentioned, these incredible discrepancy. In one case, there's a student who bought 15 homes Mm -hmm. in rapid succession. That should be red flags immediately for law enforcement to figure out what these transactions are all about, because that is not normal behavior. So, you know, if you're looking in on those recommendations, some of the back-end ones around investigation and collaboration, you know, the province creating a specialized multidisciplinary financial investigations unit would make a huge difference in ensuring this sort of stuff doesn't happen in the future. Uh, Keith, one of the knee-jerk reactions, I mean, I had it, and I'm sure people in the public are going to have it when they hear this thing, uh, is the tawdry list of people with no apparent income, Richard referenced their homemakers, students, the list goes on. Uh, Dave Eby ran down this list of people who just went on multi-million dollar real estate sprees. Uh, one assumes if they know who they are, they have some names. Uh, do you think it's, it's a rest time now? Do we go out and get these people? Do you seize those homes through civil forfeiture? I mean, what happens? Well, he used the phrase "turn over every rock," which is a nice little image out there to uh, you know people run scurrying. Um, but here's the problem I see: is uh, it'll, it'll be an interesting choice for him. Uh, by his own acknowledgement, they don't have enough resources in terms of enforcement and compliance. Uh, they've got to get more going. They need more cooperation from the federal authorities as well, which is, as Richard points out, is a big part of Maureen Maloney's recommendations. Uh, but uh, right now, I don't think he's got the resources necessarily to go after all these people. And uh, I, But unless they want to put more money in, into the whole uh, compliance and enforcement, uh, which a lot of people have been saying, it's been pointed out before, there's like no police assigned to money laundering yeah. in this province. Like, how can that be? Uh, so he's got to either shift existing resources or add to resources. And then you get in the mix of how much of this has to do with the RCMP, which is federal, how much of this has to do with FinTrack, which is the Financial Transaction Analysis Center, which is federal, which co- comes under some criticism in this report for not sharing its information and not being more proactive. Uh, so it's one thing to say we're going to go chase these guys, another thing to actually be able to do it. But, you know, as Richard pointed out, the province is already engaged in a lot of the things that need to be done in terms of transparency and openness to make sure that uh, a lot of this questionable activity doesn't keep uh, continuing on a repeating basis. The, this, the, yeah. yeah, the situation with FinTrack really looks bad here. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there is no requirement for a car dealer who gets $200,000 in cash for a car, and that happened. There's no requirement for that dealer to disclose that to the federal uh, cash transaction regulator. A casino has to disclose a realtor has to disclose, but the, the car dealer doesn't have to disclose, so it takes a change of the law. Um, the provincial people, German, uh, they go to FinTrack and they say, you're getting all these disclosure statements about cash transactions from casinos and so forth. Yeah, yeah, we get those. Um, where's the money coming from? Oh, we don't know. They have no idea the source. They don't keep track of that. Uh, all of this needs changes quickly, I would say, in federal law and regulations. But getting Ottawa to do that is a huge challenge. David Eby said today, uh, yesterday, he said, um, we're having a difficult time getting the federal government's attention on this. They don't seem to recognize that 
one of the quickest and most important changes you could make in this realm is to bring in the kind of rule they have in the United States, which is any cash transaction in business. Doesn't matter whether it's real estate or buying pianos, as we heard, or, or anything else. Any cash transaction must, over $10,000, must be disclosed. That is the situation around the world. That is not the situation here in British Columbia. In Canada. Yeah. Richard, uh, to kind of extend the question I asked Keith, but uh, there's been long a suspicion that uh, people are on the take, that bags of money have been floating around. People have been aiding and abetting this dark underworld we know is out there. Uh, David Eby uh, talked about a little bit, in the re- and in the report it was certainly mentioned by Peter German and, and Maureen Maloney, but there was some overlap and some gaps, and, and among them were, were lawyers and, and I assume some financial people that appeared to be in the mix here helping this activity. Uh, what do you do on that front? Yeah, so there are some steps that can be taken, but they need the buy-in from the lawyers here in British Columbia. And I think this is a very small portion of the legal community. Like, we're talking minuscule, and in some cases, they will be familiar with some of these names. But they need to have a conversation with the Law Society of British Columbia about the Supreme Court of Canada ruling that provided protection for lawyers in terms of turning over the names of their clients that they believe were involved in suspicious activity. The provincial government uh, says that there should be an ability for these lawyers, if they believe that criminal activity is being committed by clients, to report that problematic because of the decision by the courts, but it's something that was uh, pointed out uh, by Attorney General David Eby. Uh, The Law Society of British Columbia is still working its way through this report before providing a really holistic response, but I think the answer the government believes is if you see suspicious behavior as a lawyer, there should be the power to provide that information in order to catch these bad guys. All right, why don't we hold that thought and continue our discussion on money laundering here on Inside Politics with Keith Baldry, Richard Sussman, and Vaughn Palmer right after this. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Accountable to you for Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. Welcome back to Inside Politics. We're talking to Keith Baltry, Vaughn Palmer, and Richard Zussman about money laundering. Keith, one of the things that the Attorney General kind of underscored repeatedly in the press conference was uh, Peter German with a very short time frame with uh, pretty limited access compared to what law enforcement agencies have at their fingertips was able to source out a whole whack of information, track dirty money, and point to uh, potentially criminal activity that should have been readily apparent to policing agencies, but there was no action taken. There's a pretty clear inference there. Oh, a clear inference is one he made earlier, a few weeks ago, when he discovered there was no money laundering investigators. That police set priorities when it comes to their investigations. Uh, they have obviously have different priorities than real estate transactions. And so police have been looking at uh, other forms of of presumably money laundering because it touches on the, the gang operations in Metro Vancouver and, and elsewhere, but not specifically on real estate. So there is a, again, I go back to uh, resources. Is there enough resources in the system to sufficiently uh, 
guarantee that the police and other agencies are going to be looking at these things on a regular basis. Clearly, there isn't. And I'm not. I'm wondering whether or not it's. You know, people have called for a public inquiry, and I just actually talked to David Eby in my office here yeah. about. Um, is it better to spend the money you'd spend on a public inquiry, which some estimates 20 to $30 million over a couple of years, and redirect that money into immediately into enforcement and investigations and compliance and get some action right up front rather than what could be an endless uh, uh, inquiry that could drag on for two years? And, and he agreed with me that an inquiry would not necessarily dig up any more information that Peter German and Maureen Maloney dug up, uh, that they've done such an exemplary job here. Uh, he says, basically, a public inquiry, and he said it in the House this morning would be a fault-finding exercise, a finger-pointing exercise. And is that better than spending the money on going after the bad guys? He agreed. That's the choice they have to make. Yeah, And, and the public wants people to be held responsible, I think, is a huge part. And they're hearing about that from their constituents. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll jump into the public inquiry angle in here, here in a second. But I want to circle back, Vaughn, to the federal thing. Uh, FinTrack, as you mentioned, David Eby kind of singled them out as being, you know, not that compliant. There's no, there's not much in the way of change there. Uh, the point's been made in our conversation, the level of responsibility that lies outside the province with the federal government. And then you throw in an election this fall, and God only knows what happens after that. But uh, how significant or how problematic is it if we have a no gas pedal on the side of the federal government on this thing? As a historically aggrieved British Columbian, <laughs> I've been doing this for a long time. And when it needs a change in policy or legislation at the federal level, British Columbia has a hell of a difficult time getting Ottawa's attention, getting them to do it, even when what we want makes complete sense. But in this case, the one thing I would say that these reports do that I didn't expect, and that is very powerful, is the indication that this is a problem right across the country. It's billions of dollars. It's distorting markets right across Canada. And on that basis, you would think that the other provinces will weigh in as well and say, let's get this done. I mean, the federal government can amend legislation fairly quickly if they want to. And it strikes me that at least bringing like luxury vehicles and a few things under FinTrack disclosure could be done before the election. And I think it would be a popular move. And I can't imagine any of the national parties would oppose it. Yeah, perhaps in a popular election, pre-election move at that. Uh, on the ownership transparency, Richard, uh, I know the, the Carol James highlighted, listen, we're moving on that. We can do that as a province. We need to know who these owners are. I saw a Sam Cooper tweet uh, that talked about the e-filing property transfer system, and I'll quote here. We found properties registered to super dad, fun employed, wannabe yeah. ski bum, trophy wife, and best of all, launderer. Obviously, there needs to be a change here. Yeah, Peter German made a mention. He believes those launderers are probably people that actually own companies that uh, do laundry, like your clothing rather than your money. Um, but in, in a moment of levity in that press conference, it brought up a real pointed issue around how there is no uh, transparency. There is no structure to enforce what people put down on those forms in terms of who they are. And part of the legislation that the province is in the midst of working through and will likely pass will address some of those concerns around who's owning properties and who they are. But more needs to be done uh, to give tools to enforce those documents. And, you know, Vaughn says it's challenging always for British Columbia to get what they want. I think that that's one of the problems why this has been allowed to go on for so long. 
But clearly, we need to know who are the human beings that are buying these properties, what is their real name, and how did they buy them? You know, when I bought my house with my wife, the bank knows who we are, the government knows who we are, there's a registry there, and I think everybody should be treated the same way. Why don't we finish off the money laundering discussion talking about that public inquiry or whatever yeah. tool is is uh, involved in getting consequences? Because and as I've said before, and I think we're all on the same page here, there's few things that piss people off in this province than real estate and housing. Uh, and here yeah. we have this report uh, where people are already roaring mad, and now we have sort of the final nail in the coffin uh, on money laundering where it shows uh, what a disaster it's been on the real estate front. So, Keith, uh, I know where you stand in the public inquiry, and we agree that there's a lot of problems there, but I just wonder politically, from a public that is mad and angry and demanding accountability, I, I'm not sure there's any way out of having a public inquiry from sort of a political perspective. If they say no, people are going to be pissed. Well, maybe, but uh, are they going to be? Are they more angry at the NDP or the BC Liberals on that? I mean, this is a BC Liberal. Uh, this a lot of this happened on the BC Liberals' watch, and they allowed this to get out. I'm not sure this is an issue that the the Liberals can use to beat over the head of the NDP if there's no public inquiry. So um, there's anger right now, but I think uh, a public inquiry also, and we've seen these before. Governments, and I've talked to ministers about this, there, there's certainly, I think, um, growing consensus in the government that perhaps the uh, inquiry is the route to go, but there is apprehension, I can tell you. Some ministers have expressed concern, uh, veteran ones. A public inquiry is not controlled by a government. It goes in places it wants to go. Uh, and the, if a strong commissioner wants to go somewhere, they will go, go that way. We've had two instances in the last uh, few days that fall on the NDP's lap. One is this report takes, is all about 2018, which is under the NDP. A few weeks ago, the story we had uh, global about uh, a whistleblower coming forth uh, when the NDP was in charge of casinos. Does the inquiry go that that far back? And that could come back to haunt the NDP. The other thing is, Let's say a public inquiry is called. We've seen lots of public inquiries get stalled in their tracks. Two years from now, it's quite conceivably conceivable that not a lot is accomplished by a public inquiry, and the public anger that may be there now could be even more frustrated because nothing is happening, no action is being taken, everybody's got a lawyer. Uh, and that's when it could come back to bite the NDP, because then the problem fall right into their lap. So I think it's, it's a tough call for them. There's pros and cons for it. And Peter German actually went out of his way today when I asked him about, do you favor a public inquiry? He said, I refer you to, he named the page in his report, where he lists the pros and cons. Uh, so he certainly is aware of uh, the downside. He, he basically put in there, he's wondering whether a public inquiry would do better than his reports and Maloney's reports in terms of raising public awareness and recommendations to ensure it doesn't happen again. It basically is about personal revenge. And I'm not sure once the lawyers get involved, whether you're going to see a lot of uh, people actually get named or f- finger pointed. Yeah. But I think that when it comes to the public, though, I don't think they care where it's the NDP liberals. And I think maybe that's where the rock and the hard place comes in, because even if they do a public inquiry, there's going to be a lot of uh, examination uh, from the public and how that inquiry, if it happens, is, is sort of formulated and how it operates. If they're seen as trying to save their own political butt, there'll be a price there as well. Uh, Vaughn? Well, one of the main reasons you do a public inquiry is to find out how big the problem is and what you need to do to fix it. And I would say that the the two German reports and the Maloney report that we got today have already done that to a level that uh, probably exceeds the government's expectations when they launched it. If the whole idea was to raise public awareness of this problem to the point where there would be public support for the massive changes 
that need to take place, they've already done it. The momentum is there right now, and they should be thinking of how to get that momentum, the federal government engaged in that as well. I would think that now that one of the concerns of ordering a public inquiry would be all that energy would be dissipated by a process that would take well, David Eby's estimate is two years and $15 million. I would say that, in my estimation, a public inquiry is like a home renovation project. It'll take twice as long as you think and cost twice <laughs> as much. So um, I just I don't really see, other than political revenge, and I get the, pol- the politics of that, I think the momentum that's there right now with the public is, hey, we've exposed this problem and we're going to fix it and we're going to get doing that right now and we need your support to get Ottawa's attention so they fix it as well. So, Richard, if it's not a public inquiry and people want blood and they want accountability and they want somebody tossed in jail, preferably a whole bunch of somebodies, I mean, other than just trying to beef up policing resources tomorrow, I mean, how do you accomplish that? Yeah, exactly. You have to give the police more power. You have to make an effort towards prosecutions. But I'm also hearing on the flip side of what Keith said, that the cabinet is sort of arguing from a point where you're getting a lot of members of that provincial cabinet hearing from a lot of constituents saying they want a public inquiry because they want people held responsible. And I think they're hearing from voices around the cabinet table, just like Keith is articulating about some of the problems with the public inquiry. So I think cabinet is debating from a point where, yes, we should do the public inquiry, convince me why not and we'll find out why not but to the point you made shane we need to give the police more tools they need to be able to enforce the transaction points the port the lawyers where the money moves and if they can do that they can get people behind bars and they can also find those who are accountable at the casinos the lawyers that were accountable the politicians who made the decisions i think people want to see the Charbonneau-style report where politicians went to jail, I don't think, you know, it's going to be much different here in British Columbia for various different reasons. It's a much different case in British Columbia than it was in Quebec around um, infrastructure and building and, and construction projects. But there is a real sense here that we need people, no matter what it costs, people need to go to jail for this. A public inquiry can't lay criminal charges, though. So, yeah. um, well, as... but, well, those suggestions will be made, and those decisions, just like we saw in Quebec, they can make suggestions, and the charges can be laid by authorities. Hmm. Uh, okay, guys, let's take a quick break to the bottom of the hour. We'll resume our conversation with Richard Zussman, Vaughn Palmer, and Keith Baldry right after this. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM, and RadioNL.com. Accountable to you for Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. Welcome back to Inside Politics. We're talking to Global BC's Keith Baldry and Richard Zussman along with Vancouver Sun's Von Palmer. Okay, guys, let's talk about some other topics here. Uh, on Wednesday night, uh, uh, local government politicians at the Lower Mainland Local Government Association um, were treated to uh, a speech by the uh, Speaker of the Legislature, Daryl Plekis, um, that I would, oh, I, I think I would call it a dumpster fire. And I'll, I'll, I will read you this uh, so people know what we're talking about here. I'll read you this quote uh, because it pertains directly to the legislature. Uh, Daryl Pleck has spent a lot of his time talking about leadership and this kind of thing and the lack thereof. 
So he's talking about uh, the decline of democracy globally, and he goes into this, quote, Most people under the age of 30, according to a recent survey by the United Nations, would prefer a dictator over a democracy. He asks himself, why is that? What's the, why is this going on? Come to the legislature and watch question period. It's a no-brainer. We have people disgracing themselves at every single turn. Keith? Well, I mean, <laughs> Black is his mercurial, if nothing else. He's certainly a different character around here. Uh, you know, he, I just don't think he likes or accepts the Westminster tradition of Parliament, which by its very nature is an adver- adversarial chamber where the mother Parliament, uh, actually in its, in its description itself, says heckling is part of the Westminster tradition of, of government. Uh, Gerald Pleckis seems to reject that. Now, it is true, some of it gets out of hand in the question period, but I've seen the last couple uh, have been fine. I mean, there is heckling. But to be in a completely silent chamber where you're not allowed to say anything to each other is is just, that's not what we do. That's not how our system operates. Fleckes wants to change that, and he's trying to change it, but he seems to have retreated. He says he was just going to ban heckling. Now he just sits there and, and glares at everybody. Uh, but the, <laughs> the, the heckling goes on. But, uh, you know, sometimes it does get out of hand, and they look foolish and ridiculous. But uh, other times it is part of the, the, the system. If a cabinet minister doesn't want to answer the question, and the old joke is it's, called, it's not called answer period, yeah. uh, then they choose not to answer it. But if they choose not to answer it, tradition is the other side gets to sort of yell at them and say, no, answer the question. And that's our part of our system, but Plekis doesn't like it. I thought his comparison to talking about how hell's angels have great leaders and mafia has great leaders and then praising Donald Trump and all this stuff. I just, again, welcome to the world of Daryl Plekis. <laughs> it was Darryl interesting. Daryl Plekis completely misunderstands the tradition and job of the speaker. The speaker speaks for the members of the House and only then. And only as directed to or permitted by or standing in and representing for the members of the House. That's where it comes from. Historically, the job goes all the way back. The Speaker doesn't go out and give public speeches bad-mouthing the legislature and the MLAs. Um, and telling everyone they're disgraceful. You know, as an individual politician, he can do whatever he wants as an MLA as well. But I'm just, even, even having seen his uneven judgment and mercurial ways, I'm surprised that he wouldn't realize that it is completely inappropriate for the Speaker of the Legislature to go out in public and malign and badmouth members on all sides of the House. Yeah, and uh, to be fair, the crowd he was speaking to did take exception to it, which made it all the more awkward. Uh, But there was (laughs) one other comment in there, Richard, that kind of... uh, uh, perked up my ears. He touched on the legislature spending controversy, basically told the audience, listen, if you like the reports you've seen so far, you're going to love the one coming next week. I assume it's the McLaughlin report he's referring to. I don't know for sure. Uh, and he did sort of touch on Craig James and Gary Lenz. And I wonder how appropriate it was for him to kind of get into any kind of specifics uh, in front of a crowd like that outside the legislature on this particular topic. Completely inappropriate. He shouldn't even have those reports or that report that was done by Beverly McLaughlin. It wasn't for him. It was for the House leaders. And no doubt the House leaders knew that those had to go to lawyers, and they probably made the decision, considering his comments, that it was right for him to have uh, the findings. But I think it's completely inappropriate for him to make any mention of what is in that report. He didn't commission the report. He didn't write the report. 
We are waiting to see that report come out publicly, and we expect that could happen as early as next week. But I think um, at this point, Plekis has done his work. He should let the process work its way through. The decision is going to be made on whether Craig James and Gary Lynch uh, should remain on pay with leave, move to pay without leave, get terminated, or return to their job. Uh, I think that's what the decision will be made out of the McLaughlin report. But for Plekis to make any comment about all of that before that decision is made, I think is inappropriate. Uh, last topic, guys, ICBC, we're less than four months from the big changes in September. Uh, Dave Eby tells me there will be an online tool uh, coming imminently. People will literally be able to go online and compare the old system versus the new. Uh, more importantly, Keith, they'll be able to determine what it costs them, old versus new, and make a decision based on that. Uh, how badly do we need that information out there right now? Oh, I think it would be great if we did have that info. I'll be... I'll be uh surprised if it doesn't come with a bunch of glitches, given how a lot of <laughs> computer systems and government seem to operate. But no, it's, it's important for EB to put a lot of this stuff in context, because I think a lot of people, by his own admission, he says most drivers are going to be better off. Okay, that's great. But that means, still means there's potentially hundreds of thousands of drivers who are not going to be better off, and they need to be shown in a very clear way why why it is what's happening to them is happening. And uh, and if it's an online tool, so much the better. But I think it's going to be a challenge for the NDP government to really drive this rate structure home and have it win with the public. Because ICBC right now, not very popular. Uh, as Richard can tell you, we had the Canadian taxpayers balloon on the front lawn. Uh, he saw it. I didn't see it. But, uh, you know, this this uh, anti-ICBC protest out there is, is mounting. And the changes that are coming from September, I think, will only inflame it. And, and speaking to that, I mean, he, he's constantly said bad drivers are going to pay more. They're going to pay a lot more. Uh, and yet when he told me about this online tool, he kind of said, well, listen, it's going to inform drivers. They'll be able to make a choice. Look at the cost. I can re-up with the old cost prior to September for another year, or I can go under the new system, which made me think that for a year, there's going to be a lot of bad drivers that go, um, I'm going to re-up August 30th. Thank you very much. Vaughn? Well, I also think that an awful lot of people may not trust ICBC's online tool to tell them what they were paying last year and what they're going to be paying next year. They're more likely to look at what their tab was last year for their insurance and what they're told they're going to be paying next year. And whether they take ICBC's word for it or not, I don't know. But uh, in any event, no, I think they're bracing themselves for what you would expect, that the people that are going to be paying a lot more are going to be complaining a lot more as well. We've already had one in, one rate increase this year, and for many people, there's a second increase coming September the 1st. And finishing with you, Richard, I mean, there's a lot of people out there who consider themselves good drivers, uh, and we don't quite know how this new system will work. The safe driving thing will rely on some kind of a 10-year scan of your driving history. Uh, do you think there's going to be more than a few people that uh, all of a sudden look at that and go, wait a minute, I'm not a bad driver. What the hell? I think there's going to be a lot of people, Shane. David Eby has said 75% of people will either pay the same or pay more. And I think the bulk of that is going to be pay more. How much more? We're going to have to wait and find out. Insurance is already very expensive. And everybody looks themselves in the mirror pretty much and says, I'm a good driver. So I think a lot of those people are going to say, I'm getting unfairly punished. A lot of these rule changes around losing your one uh, free crash, uh, as well as uh, the number of years that you need to have a, a clean record, all of these things are changing. And I think the um, the way that ICBC is, is doing it has been 
uh, controversial in some senses, but I think everybody agrees that something needs to be done to fix it. I think they're at least happy the government is trying to tackle uh, this massive dumpster fire that's been hemorrhaging cash over the last few years. All right. Lots of dumpster fire references today. Uh, <laughs> gentlemen, always a pleasure. Thanks so much. All right. Take care, Shane. Hey, bye-bye. Yeah, thanks, Shane. That was Global BC's Keith Baldry and Richard Zussman, along with the Vancouver Suns, Vaughn Palmer on the panel this week. Look forward to catching up and talking more with them again on this show next week. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Accountable to you for Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. Good morning. Welcome back to Inside Politics. Uh, To get a sense of what all this means from a very real estate focused perspective, real pleasure to welcome to the program from UBC Sauter School of Business, Associate Professor Thomas Davidoff. We've long suspected money laundering had a pretty profound impact on real estate. Uh, We got a much more clear picture of that today with, uh, you know, something like $7 billion injected into real estate, or sorry, $7 billion in BC, $5 million, $5 billion in real estate. Uh, just last year, never mind, you know, 2017, 2016, and all the, all the years previous. But um, as you digest the information that we've heard uh, today, uh, what's your sort of initial reaction? Well, first of all, the number is huge, right? I mean, that's the first thing you see is, my God, $5 billion just at the back of an envelope. Uh, you know, that would be large relative to the number of transactions in a year in B.C. It's not as big, but it would be a significant chunk. And so if there's that much money illicitly sloshing through, you know, that's having a big impact uh, potentially on, on prices. And so, you know, it, the scale of the potential problem is large. Now, that said, the number is an estimate. And what they did not do is, you know, pour through property transaction records and say, yeah, this one looks bad, this one looks good. What they did is they said, you know, given our economy's size and, you know, by international standards, I believe, how common is it, you know, that a dollar of GDP would be a laundered crime dollar, that's where they come up with the billions of dollars. So... I think what that says is given our economy's really size, we're at risk of having a large amount of illicit money flow through. And then, you know, we used to have a a property law system and tax system that said, you know, if you want to buy real estate here, low taxes, no questions asked. And that invited that potentially large problem to be large. So I think, you know, combined with the potential size of the problem, uh, what the authors, uh, you know, sort of all I think agree on is making sure that the government has a way to know uh, that purchases uh, are made, you know, by money essentially earned and paid tax upon here in Canada. So, well, here's the million dollar question then. I mean, if we're going to fix this problem, uh, get a clear understanding of its impact and get a sense of accountability and consequences here. Uh, What do you do to the system? I mean, I know there's legislation on on sort of more transparent ownership, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, But what what changes do you make to go, okay, uh, we're going to make sure that every dollar spent in real estate is legitimate and there's no shady operators out there. I mean, how do you how do you make that system? What needs to be done? Well, first of all, we're not going to have every dollar be legitimate and make the real estate industry have no shady operators. I think that would be a very tall order. But, 
you know, I think they have a bunch of recommendations. You know, some of them are the registry and make sure they get the registry right. I think that's number one. You know, see, own property, who owns the property and not who owns it like legally, who's holding on to the title, but who gets to actually occupy the property. And if the price goes up, who gets the economic gain? You have to name that person or people. So that's one very important one. I think the speculation tax, which draws a line. Uh, between, you know, dollars made in Canada and, you know, your status as a low tax owner is helpful in that way, again, because the government can, can get a sense of, well, you know, potentially, you know, where are those earnings coming from that are funding the purchase of the property. So I think those two steps have probably had an impact in reducing the magnitude of money in the system. You know, I know there's that number of, you know, five billion in 2018, but we don't know from the study uh, whether there was more or less uh, illicit money coming through the system in 2018 than 2017 or 16 or 15 or 14. One of the things about the Metro Vancouver market, I mean, it was, it was so roaring hot for a number of years there, it literally drove the economy with the, with yes. the you know, all the taxes and stuff associated. Uh, we're getting stories now about, you know, the lofty heights now down to sort of uh, something more reasonable or, you know, the, the low of the lows. Uh, do we do we want an economy that, that, that it relies to some degree on money laundering? What's the impact <laughs> if, we, if we weed it all out and all of a sudden, or not all, but you know what I mean, to some large extent yeah. we deal with the problem and suddenly this this big pool of money that's been fueling this raging hot real estate fire it goes away. I mean, what does that do in an economical sense, Don? Well, yeah, I mean, and it's not just dirty money, you know, and I, you know, and I think there's probably shades of gray, you know, suppose you live in a kleptocracy and, you know, you're no more or less honest than your average Canadian, uh, but you uh, want to get your money out of that kleptocracy. Uh, is that dirty? You know, I don't know that you can, you know, the, the, I don't know. You know, suppose the government doesn't want you taking money out because they want to steal it and you take it out. You know, is that dirty money? I don't know. Uh, but but taking all of that money out of the system here, I think potentially could reduce property values. Uh, you know, if the, the numbers in the report are to be believed, if that's the magnitude, then, you know, yeah, I think there could be an adverse impact to prices of taking that money out. Now, that cuts both ways. If you're a renter, uh, I think that's mostly a good thing. You know, if these guys own rental property, then they're, they're actually not, not driving up rents. But if they're holding properties empty, they are. So, uh, you know, I think um, th there could be adverse effects on prices, which are good, again, for, for people looking to buy, but bad for people who currently do own property and, you know, maybe bad for uh, realtors and lenders and lots of other people who legitimately work in the real estate sector. So, you know, getting any type of money out of a real estate system has its pluses and minuses. Yeah, for sure. Um Ultimately, just a quick question to follow. I mean, is it a good thing? I mean, uh, I used to live in, in Metro Vancouver, and I know a lot of my friends have left. I have left. A lot of people are coming into places like Kamloops, where I am mm -hmm. now, they're fleeing. I call them affordability refugees. But yes. uh, does it inject some reasonability into that market at the end of the day, regardless of how we got there or no? You know, I think there's a general view. You know, Vancouver very much could become a playground for the rich, but that's, you know, a bit of a policy choice. If we encourage people... 
uh, you know, if we have a tax and regulatory system that says, come to Vancouver to buy property, but, you know, we're going to start asking questions and charging you money if you try to make a living. Well, then you do become a playground for the, the international rich and possibly money launderers. Uh, if instead the tax and regulatory system says, you know, if you buy property and you're not making a living in uh, Canada and paying taxes, we're going to ask a lot of questions. Well, then you have a very different looking economy. You have uh, a, a real estate market dominated by locals. And, you know, those are different visions of how you want the city to look. And, you know, uh, I think for people who've been chased out by high prices, that would be uh, the latter would be preferable. And I think, you know, policy has moved that way in the last five years or so, three, yeah. three years. Yeah, no, I'd agree. Uh, the other aspect of this, we tend to look at it in black and white, dirty money, real estate, yes. bad guys, good guys, that kind of thing. Right. Um, but there are other aspects to this, including uh, we have bad guys, but people are helping facilitate these transactions, be they lawyers, be they real estate agents, be they people in the financial sector. Uh, do we need more regulation there in order to kind of make this a better process or no? Yeah, you know, I think having realtors generally on the hook is a mistake. You know, you, you should give realtors very clear instructions about what you need to do. Here's the information you must gather. And if you don't gather it, bad. And if you do, good. And if you're dishonest, you're in trouble. I think that's the what you want to communicate to realtors. I don't think you want to generally say, hey, you know, guy whose job it is to sell a property on somebody's behalf uh, or buy on their behalf, you know, you need to be the judge of how dirty or clean their money is. One thing I have heard is that lawyers don't have an obligation if they think something's funny to report it. Uh, and that's, as I understand it, based on, you know, lawyer or solicitor client privilege. Uh, I, I'm not an expert on this, but I, I, as I understand it, that is one area of professionals who are sort of excluded from the uh, information gathering process in a way that's probably not helpful. Just out of curiosity, I mean, we've, we've had a long road to get here. Uh, we've got allegations of, of all sorts of obscene activity. Obviously, there's there's an element of rubber hits the road as far as accountability and consequences. Yeah. But uh, as far as the real estate market in Vancouver itself, which seems to be sort of the hub of this activity, um, what happens next? Do prices keep coming down? To, uh, how, how does the market itself react? Yeah, I, you know, we have to be careful about, again, how much news is in this report. I mean, it's clear that the government is serious about keeping outside money out of the market, be it illegal outside money or really legal outside money. Uh, again, you know, there was a potentially large criminal market. This report doesn't say how big it is or isn't. It's possible this report shifts expectations uh, and people say, geez, you know, the government's really serious about cleaning up the market and a lot of the market, according to, you know, the estimate in the appendix is illegal money. So if people perceive the market differently now, now that could have an effect. My best guess is that's not a huge issue. Uh, you know, people who, who want to immigrate to Vancouver and make a living there are going to continue to want to. And, you know, so I think supply and demand you know, forces are what's going to continue to drive the market. Uh, those forces in the near term don't look very propitious for, for prices. I'd say they look pretty bad. 
but you know, people have been surprised over and over again by the resilience of demand uh, for real estate in Vancouver. <laughs> you can say that again. Tom, thanks for taking a few minutes, man. Really appreciate it. Real pleasure, it. Shane. Be well. You as well. And that was Thomas Davidoff from the Souter School of Business at UBC. He's an associate professor there and an uh, expert on all things real estate in the Lower Mainland. And that's it for today's edition of Inside Politics. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL next week. 1230 Merit, 1340 Ashcroft, Cash Creek, from CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL, 610 AM, local news now.